Volume 1, Chapter 12, Part 2 of A Popular History of England From the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org A Popular History of England from the earliest times to the reign of Queen Victoria by Francois Guillemore Gouzette Chapter 12 Part 2 John of Gaunt had returned from Castile. He had become reconciled with his brothers. Concord appeared re-established in the royal family. A truce had been concluded with France and Scotland. The King of Scotland, Robert II, had died on the 19th of April, 1390, and his eldest son had assumed the title of Robert III. Queen Anne had also died in 1394, and King Richard, who had no children, married two years later, much against the wishes of his subjects, the Princess Isabel, daughter of Charles VI, King of France. She was but seven years old, but the king conceived the liveliest affection for her and conducted her everywhere with him upon his travels. An expedition in Ireland against the insurgent chiefs had been very successful, but the Duke of Gloucester protested with all his might against the alliance with France. Our Edwards, he said, caused Paris to tremble even in its entrails, but under Richard we caught the French who make us tremble within London. The Duke had his reasons for trembling. The King had not forgotten the execution of his favourites, nor the men who had signed their indictment. The Earl of Warwick, one of the accomplices of Gloucester, was already arrested. The Earl of Arundel soon followed. The Duke of Gloucester had retired to Pleshy Castle in Essex. His nephew repaired there in gay company. All the family came forward to meet the king, but while the Duchess was conversing with him, Gloucester was arrested by the Marshal of England, dragged as far as the river, thrown into a boat, and from thence a vessel bore him toward Calais. A rumour was thereupon spread that he had been assassinated. The king published a proclamation declaring that the arrest had been made with the approval of his uncles of Lancaster and York as well as of his cousin, the Earl of Derby. He had even obtained, by a ruse, their signatures to the impeachment. Lord Arundel was condemned by the Parliament and immediately executed. His brother, the Archbishop of Canterbury, was not even admitted to plead his cause, for the King dreaded his eloquence. He was banished for life, and the Earl of Warwick, at first condemned to death, was imprisoned in the Isle of Man. The House of Lords then called the Duke of Gloucester for judgment, but the Marshal replied that he could not bring the Lord Duke, who had for several days been dead at Calais. He was condemned, however, and all his goods were confiscated. It was said that he had been suffocated between two mattresses. The judges were not without uneasiness concerning the application which they had just made of the high treason law. Nearly all had been at different periods compromised in plots or insurrections. They obtained of the king an amnesty for the past, a 
and as a reward for present services, Richard made his cousin the Earl of Derby, Duke of Hereford. The Earl of Nottingham became Duke of Norfolk, and John Holland, the murderer, was made Duke of Exeter. The Parliament completed its work of complacence, by granting to the King for life a subsidy upon Woolens, and by forming a commission entrusted to watch affairs. King Richard was no longer in a hurry to appeal to his people, or to convoke the Parliament. The conduct of the King toward his uncle, the Duke of Gloucester, and his friends, the vengeance which had overtaken after so many years the enemies of the favourites, revealed the character of the sovereign in a light which caused uneasiness in the country. Indolent and prodigal, habitually engrossed in the pleasures of luxury and magnificence, Richard was not only capable of momentary energy, but he maintained in the bottom of his heart projects which he shaped to his purposes with patience and perseverance. Once delivered of the Parliament and of the Duke of Gloucester, the Duke of Lancaster aged and in retirement in his castle. Richard gave himself up to all his whims, certain as he thought of encountering no serious opposition. At that time, says Frosent, no one was great enough in England to dare to speak against the will of the King. He had a council obedient to his wishes, who begged him to do as he pleased he had in his pay ten thousand archers who guarded him day and night. The extravagances of the court were insolent, and the people began to complain, looking back regretfully upon the government of the king's uncles, who had shown some consideration, they said, for the nation, and consulted it in its own affairs. Two great noblemen alone remained of those who had, in 1386, seconded the efforts of the Duke of Gloucester against the favourites of the King. And notwithstanding the favour shown to them by Richard, they did not feel secure in their positions. The Duke of Norfolk, galloping upon the road to Windsor in the month of December 1397, encountered the Duke of Hereford. We are ruined, said he to his friend. Wherefore? asked Bolingbroke. For that affair at Radcock Bridge. Footnote. The Duke of Ireland, Robert de Vere, had been defeated by Gloucester and his companions at Radcock Bridge. What? After so many pardons and declarations by the Parliament, rejoined Bolingbroke, he will annul all that, and we shall pass through the ordeal like the others. The world in which we live is strangely perfidious. The Duke of Norfolk soon had reason to be convinced of this either through thoughtlessness or through treachery, the conversation was reported to the king. He convoked the parliament, and his first care in the month of January 1398 was to summon Henry Bolingbroke to render an account of the words of the Duke of Norfolk. The latter was not present, but upon the summons of the parliament he came to throw down his glove at the feet of the Duke of Hereford, declaring him a traitor and a perjurer. The combat was authorised between the two noblemen. I shall then at length have peace, muttered the king, while proceeding to Coventry on the 16th of September, to be present at the tournament. But having once confronted the two antagonists, he became fearful of a victory for one of them, and forbidding the ordeal, he submitted the question to a parliamentary commission chosen by himself. The Duke of Hereford was condemned to an exile of ten years, 
the Duke of Norfolk was banished for ever. He thereupon started for the Holy Land and died of grief at Venice. But Henry Bolingbroke did not go far away. He remained in France, watching the movements of his cousin Richard, who lavished the riches of England with so faultless a hand that his treasury was constantly empty. His favourites would then help him to replenish it by exactions of every kind. The Duke of Lancaster had died three months after the departure of his son. His immense property was confiscated, notwithstanding the protests of Bolingbroke. A decree outlawed seventeen counties of England as having been favourable to the enemies of the king. They were compelled to buy back their rights of enormous fines. The disaffection increased, but the king took no heed whatever of it. He embarked towards the end of May 1390 for Ireland, where his cousin and heir apparent, the Earl of March, had recently been assassinated. He had just taken the field against the rebels, when Henry Bolingbroke landed on the 4th of July at Ravenspur in Yorkshire, having escaped from France under the pretext of paying a visit to the Duke of Brittany. Bolingbroke had brought with him a feeble following, the exiled Archbishop of Canterbury and his nephew, the Earl of Arundel, fifteen knights and men-at-arms, and a few servants. But scarcely had he touched the English soil when the Earls of Northumberland and Westmoreland joined him, bringing with them considerable forces. Henry did not disclose his ulterior projects to anyone. He came, he said, to claim his right, the inheritance of his father, which the king had wrongly confiscated. And moreover, the public feeling was so favourable to him, the nation was so weary of seeing itself ill-governed, that the malcontents rose in all parts to place themselves under his standard. He was, it is said, at the head of an army of 60,000 men when he advanced toward London. The Duke of York, regent of the kingdom in the absence of Richard, did not rely upon the burgesses of the city. He had quitted the capital and displayed the royal standard at St Albans. Terror began to seize the creatures of the king. Instead of marching against the rebels, they cowardly shut themselves up in fortified castles. The Duke of York had taken the western road, pending the return of King Richard. But Bolingbroke had used diligence, and he arrived at the Seven on the same day as the Regent. The latter placed little confidence in his troops. He was aware of the general discontent, and he retained in the bottom of his heart a bitter resentment for the murder of his brother Gloucester. He granted an interview to his neighbour Bolingbroke. The firm, bold and cunning mind of Henry triumphed easily over the feeble will of the Duke of York. The two armies were amalgamated, and the regent helped the usurper to take Bristol Castle. There the members of the commission which had formerly condemned Bolingbroke had taken refuge. They were executed without any form of trial, and the Duke of Lancaster marched upon Chester, leaving his uncle at Bristol. For three weeks Richard remained in ignorance of what was taking place in his kingdom. When he at length learnt the news of the landing of Henry and his formidable progresses, he exclaimed bitterly, Ah, my good uncle of Lancaster, the Lord have mercy on your soul. If I had believed you, although this man might be your son, he would never have harmed me. Three times I have forgiven him, 
This is his fourth offence. The Earl of Salisbury immediately set sail to assemble together some troops in England. It raised pretty considerable forces in Wales. But the king delayed. The soldiers murmured and dispersed by degrees. A large number went and joined the rebels. The king at length disembarked of his cousin, the Duke of Albemarle, and his two brothers, the Dukes of Exeter and Surrey. The little army which he had taken to Ireland followed him. But at the second halting place, when the king, having risen very early, looked through the window towards the camp, where on the previous evening six thousand soldiers had slept, he no longer saw but a handful of archers and men-at-arms. All had deserted during the night. The king was advised to take refuge at Bordeaux. That would be to abdicate, said his brother, the Duke of Exeter. It was resolved that they should join the Earl of Salisbury, and the king, disguised as a priest, took the road to Conway, his brothers and a few servants, while the Duke of Albemarle, following the example of his father, the Duke of York, fled by night to join the army of the usurper. The Earl of Salisbury had not a hundred men with him when the king arrived at Conway. In this deplorable situation, the brothers of King Richard proposed to go to Henry at Chester in order to ascertain his pretensions. The two dukes did not return. Their cousin Bolingbroke received them kindly, but he positively refused to release them. All his efforts were directed towards seizing the king in person. The Earl of Northumberland was entrusted with this mission. By false promises, he enticed the king out of Conway, proposing an interview with Bolingbroke at Flint. Richard was almost alone. Abandoned, he followed the Earl with the friends who remained to him. They galloped along slowly, while suddenly the king cried, I am betrayed. Lord in heaven, help me. Do you not see banners and pennants flying in the valley? Northumberland advanced at the same time. My lord, the unhappy monarch said to him abruptly, if I thought you capable of betraying me, I could yet retreat. No, replied the earl, who had laid hold of his bridle. I have promised to conduct you to the Duke of Lancaster. The soldiers of Northumberland began to appear. The king yielded to necessity. Our saviour was sold and delivered into the hand of his enemies, he murmured. They arrived at Flint. Henry Bolingbroke, in all his armour, came forward to meet his royal cousin, and bent his knee on approaching. Good cousin of Lancaster, said Richard courteously, you are welcome. My lord, replied Henry, I have come before my time, but I will tell you the reason. Your people complain that you have given them harshly. Twenty-two years. If it please God, I will help you rule them better. Since it pleases you, it pleases me also, neatly replied the fallen monarch. And seated upon a wretched courser, like a prisoner, King Richard took the road to Chester, side by side of Henry Bolingbroke. Frosart relates that his very dog abandoned him to lick the hand of the usurper. At Litchfield, Richard attempted to escape, but he was seized as he had just issued forth through a window, and thereafter was narrowly guarded. The people of London receded with yells and insults. Usurper repaired to St Paul's, prayed upon the tomb of his father, 
and then took possession of the palace. The king had been led to the tower. The parliament was convoked and ready to depose Richard II as he had formerly deposed his great-grandfather. But Henry Bolingbroke, with a bitter foresight to the mutability of human things, wished to secure the personal consent and the voluntary abdication of the king. He held him narrowly confined within the tower. Why do you cause me to be thus guarded? Richard angrily exclaimed one day. Am I your king or your prisoner? You are my king, replied the duke, but the council of your kingdom have seen fit to place a guard beside your person. On the eve of the opening of Parliament, a deputation of prelates and barons paid a visit to the unhappy king in the tower and asked him to abdicate. Richard felt himself powerless in the hands of his enemies. He yielded willingly and joyfully, said the acts of Parliament, and releasing his subjects from their oath, he consigned his royal ring to his cousin of Lancaster, saying that he would choose him for his successor if he had the right to designate him. These details are open to doubt, but the Parliament held them good. On the 30th of September, before the empty throne in Westminster Hall, the abdication of Richard was read aloud, all the members giving their consent to it. The people uttered cries of joy. The coronation oath was then brought, and at each article proclaimed aloud, the impeachment of King Richard was drawn up. He was accused of the murder of his uncle Gloucester, of having revoked the amnesties and having squandered the public money. Nobody raised his voice for the dethroned monarch until the Bishop of Carlisle, Thomas Merks, rose and publicly denied the right of the Parliament to depose the King and to change the order of succession, at the same time defending Richard against his accusers. Scarcely had he finished his discourse when he was arrested. While he was being conducted to St Albans, Parliament pronounced deposition of Richard, and the Lord Chief Justice was instructed to announce his fall to him. I care not to court the regal authority, said the deposed king. I only hope that my good cousin will be a good master to me. His good cousin was not yet legally king. The descendants of Lionel, the third son of Edward III, were the legitimate heirs to the throne. No one, however, thought of them. The Duke of Lancaster remained in his seat. His surrounders waited in profound silence. He arose and solemnly making the sign of the cross, said in a very loud voice, In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, I, Henry of Lancaster, lay claim to this kingdom of England and to the crown as a descendant of the good King Henry III, and by the right which God has given me, for granting to me the favour, through the support of my friends, to come to the assistance of this country, which was about to perish under bad laws and for want of government. This mixture of hereditary pretensions with popular rights was skilful. The Parliament responded to the appeal of Henry Bolingbroke. Acclamations broke out in all parts. The Duke showed the ring which Richard had consigned to him. The Archbishop of Canterbury took him by the hand and led him to the foot of the throne. Henry knelt there for a moment. He then ascended the steps and seated himself resolutely. The plaudits recommenced during the discourse of the Archbishop. I thank you, my lord, said the new monarch, and I wish everybody to know 
that by right of conquest I will disinherit nobody of his rights, but wish that all may be governed by the good laws of the kingdom, and may hold what he has by right. The officers of the crown and the great noblemen also vowed fealty and homage. Henry the Fourth was king of England. In the first days of his reign, the new sovereign was enabled to believe that public opinion fully confirmed his usurpation. All the great noblemen were eager to fulfil at his coronation the hereditary offices. The Earl of Northumberland alone, who had rendered eminent services to him, marched beside him in the procession, holding aloft in sight of all the sword worn by Bolingbroke on landing at Ravenspur. The House of Commons responded to the slightest wishes of the King, and the greater number of the unpopular measures of the last reign were withdrawn by common consent. A great uproar arose in the House of Lords. The peers who had appealed against the Duke of Gloucester were summoned to exculpate themselves. All took their stand upon the wish of King Richard, upon the fear which he inspired, and upon the unanimous vote of the House. Recriminations poured down in every part. Forty gauntlets were thrown upon the ground as challenges to combat. A weak and timid monarch would have taken alarm in the midst of this violent confusion. Henry the Fourth was enabled to claim the agitation. He divested the Lords Appellant, as they were styled, of the titles which Richard had given to them as rewards. The Dukes of Albemarle, Surrey and Exeter, the Marquess of Dorset, and the Earl of Gloucester, became once more the Earls of Rutland, Kent, Huntingdon and Somerset and Lord Lur Dispenser, but the new king wreaked no other vengeance upon them. The high treason laws restored to more limited and less vague formulae. Appeals to the houses in cases of treason were abolished, and the Parliament was forbidden to delegate its authority to a commission. The eldest son of the king was declared Prince of Wales, Duke of Goyen, Lancaster and Cornwall as well as heir presumptive to the throne. Henry was too prudent to again raise the question of the law of succession, which he had so boldly disregarded. He did not wish his hereditary right to the throne to be discussed. He well knew that the little Earl of March, so carefully installed in Windsor Castle, was the real heir to the throne, as great-grandson of Lionel Duke of Clarence, the elder brother of John of Gaunt. The child was not at nine years of age. The king caused him to be well brought up, as well as his brother, and neither were destined to recover his liberty during his lifetime. But their sister, soon afterwards married to the Earl of Cambridge, had transmitted to the House of York those rights or those pretensions which condemned England to half a century of civil war. Difficulties abound in the path of usurpers. King Richard had not protested. He had asked for nothing, but he still lived in the tower. Before dissolving the Parliament, King Henry IV dispatched the Earl of Northumberland to the House of Lords. The latter asked that the message with which he was entrusted should be kept secret. He then consulted the House upon the manner in which the dispossessed king was to be treated. For my master Henry, he added, has resolved at any cost to preserve the life of Richard. The lords all replied that King Richard should be secretly led away to some castle, 
and placed in the hands of faithful custodians who should prevent all communication with his friends. This was the sanction which Henry the Fourth wished for. The dispossessed monarch was conducted to Leeds Castle in Kent and then transferred by night from castle to castle as had been his great-grandfather Edward II. In the month of January, Richard had arrived in Pontefract Castle in Yorkshire. The removal of the dethroned king could not suffice to strengthen the power. Conspiracies were already beginning. The Lord's Appellant had scarcely been punished, but their fears as well as their resentment urged them to revenge. They had formed the project of assassinating Henry and of replacing Richard upon the throne. The tournament was announced at Oxford for the 3rd of January. The Earl of Huntington, the brother-in-law of the king, invited the latter to be present thereat. The invitation was accepted. The murder was to be accomplished during the joists. The king and his son were to succumb beneath numbers. The day came. The king had not arrived, and the Earl of Rutland was absent from the place of meeting. The conspirators saw themselves betrayed, but a bold stroke might yet save them. They galloped to Windsor and took possession of the castle. The king was no longer there. Warned in time, he had taken refuge in London. The arrest warrants were already issued against the traitors. And on the morrow, Henry marched against them at the head of a considerable force. They did not await him and fled to arm their vessels. Civil war appeared imminent. The public opinion was with King Henry. It administered justice to the conspirators without the king being obliged to interfere. The citizens of the Sirencester seized the earls of Kent and Salisbury and struck off their heads. Lord Lure Dispenser was beheaded by the citizens of Bristol. The Earl of Huntington was dismembered at Pleshy by the servant of the late Duke of Gloucester. The king had only to cause the trial of a few accomplices of low degree. The attempt of the Lord's Appellant probably cost the life of King Richard. It was learnt towards the end of January that he had died at Pontefract. It was related that he had refused to take any food since the death of his brothers, the Earls of Kent and Huntington. Distrustful people asserted that he had been starved to death. Others maintained that he had been attacked in his prison by some assassins, and that after valiantly defended himself, he had been killed by a blow behind the head. When the body of the unhappy monarch was brought to London, after being interred at Langley, a portion only of the face was uncovered. The details of his death were forever unknown, and many people were resolute in denying it. End of chapter 12, part 2